This is Lexi Vest. And my pet is Alexander Hamilton, better known as Ham. Want a treat? Come here, Ham. When Lexi first brought Ham home, he was only two pounds, small enough to fit in the palm of her hand. Now he's probably about 65 to 70 pounds. Get a treat. He is not chunky by any means. He's just really dense. Well, physically Good. dense, maybe, but smart. Give me a sit. Good boy. Okay, now let's spin. Good spin. Ham absolutely adores me, but I can also say that Ham is very much a one-woman pig. Ham, come on, let's go outside. Yeah. Ooh, it's a windy day. Okay, here he goes. Here he goes. Are you gonna run? Woohoo! Gonna get you. I'm gonna get you. Actually, tomorrow's his birthday, and he's gonna be turning six years old. So I think what we're gonna do is just probably a day of his favorite treats, which are things like Cheerios, whipped cream, any sort of vegetable. The only food that we found that Ham hates is kale. He refuses to eat kale, but other than that, he's not meta-food he doesn't like. <laughs> From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell, and today on the show, all about the pets we love. Uh, I'm gonna get you. It's his favorite thing. He's running around. My first guest started as a veterinarian for 600-pound farm pigs. These days, she treats pet pigs, who are sometimes the miniature size of 150 pounds. Sherry Clark is a professor at Virginia Tech's Virginia-Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine, and she says pigs make good pets, but for the right family. Sherry, you study pet pigs. What are these guys like, and are they a lot like dogs? Is having a pet pig like having a pet dog or cat? They are similar to owning a dog, although I think many times they're smarter. Um, but they definitely come with their own sort of nuances. You know, I mean, they can be house trained. They can do a variety of things. But they also have a spectacular nose and they know how to tear up carpets and linoleum and there's just a variety of things that are a little bit different with owning a miniature pet pig as opposed to a dog. And are we talking about those micro mini pigs that got so popular a few years back? Or these potbelly pigs or the giant farm kind? So majority of them, and I, I grouped them as miniature pet pigs, and there's a variety of, of breeds of pet pigs. And so the Vietnamese potbelly pig is one of those breeds. They do range in sizes. So the Juliana mini pig is one that's adult size is probably in the 45, maybe to 65 pound range. Um, and they are just, you know, really calm, temperamented, really great with families. Not that the Vietnamese popular pig isn't, but their range can be up to, you know, 150 to 200 pounds, which a lot of I didn't people... realize that. Yeah, and a lot of people get deterred with that of bringing it into their home. They they tend to start with them in their home and then move them to an indoor-outdoor type situation, you know, like some families do with an outdoor dog situation. Do you think people, when they start out, think they can treat the pigs just like dogs with snouts? Yeah, they they learn quickly that the pig is a little bit of a different beast, but you can train them very well. They can be potty trained. They are very much responsive to reward training, just like dogs. It's just, I think sometimes I have determined during the 25 years plus that I've worked with them, that sometimes I think the pig is smarter than I am. You know, at least I, I'm pretty sure that they train me as much as I try to condition them for, you know, what activities we're going to do together. Talk about two things. One is how smart they are. I have always heard pigs are extremely intelligent. How have you interacted with a pig where you thought, this is incredibly smart? One thing that I do recognize that I have worked with several pigs for, let's say, up to five or six years. They learn conditioned. This is what Dr. Clark does when we work together. So how I bring them into our facility or if I'm at their location 
I try to do the same thing every time because they don't like change and honestly, neither do I. Um, but some of the, the ones that I've brought in for numerous years, they know exactly where I'm going to take them. So even if I'm not really guiding them, like if I have a new student moving them, the pig just goes towards where I have taken them in the past and they just toodaloo to say, this is where I'm supposed to go. If I need to go ahead and, and sedate them prior to a procedure, they know I do the same thing every time. So if I start to move uh, a gate or you know bring a board in, they already are cued in that said, okay, this is going to happen. She's going to angle me this way. And then I actually have some that they know the injection's coming and they kind of, they sort of, you know, brace for it and they get a quick little poke and then they know that part is over. So I know they remember, I know that they, you know, anticipate that they know exactly what is going to happen because of the same cues that I've given them each time I try to do the same thing. So the other part of my question, what about the unconditional love, the non-judgment we feel from our dog pets? <laughs> how, do, how do pigs rate on that? <laughs> uh, I don't believe there's unconditional love with them. Most, <laughs> most pigs that I know, like they do understand and respect their owners, but they also have train their owners that the pig runs the household. And many people have told me that it's, you know, they love their owners, but they also, when they come back from an appointment with me, they may pout for two or three days and they put up with their owners, but they're mad at their owners too for a couple days. Like they will just pout and semi want to punish the owner a little bit. Like, why did you take me? They don't just have that like unconditional, like, okay, you took care of me. That was great. They're, yeah. They tend to be a little more expressive in their distaste of something, but they do love their owners. You know, I definitely see that, but I don't think I quite see that total unconditional love that I have seen with dogs. I love that you're studying the happiness of pigs as reported by their so-called pig parents. What are you finding makes for a well-cared-for pig emotionally as well as physically? Yeah, and we're we're actually just now having a student analyze some of that data. So we're excited to see what our owner's perception is for the well-being of their pet pig. I think we anticipated in the very beginning that we thought it might high rate as far as food, like reward and food, because pigs are very food motivated. But I think some of the responses, and and I'm really supposed to be blinded and not see the responses, but just the owners talk to me and tell me when we're talking about the study, is they know that their pigs respond well to human interaction, whether it just be talking with them, scratches, just laying on the couch and being couch potatoes with them. Like those are something that they definitely have attributed to the well-being of their pet pig. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I can see that as well because they're very social animals. So I anticipate that when the remainder of the data gets analyzed, that we'll be surprised, but maybe not so surprised that that's going to probably be a higher rated factor than just food. I imagine a good pig owner adapts quickly to what the pig wants and needs um, in the sense that, you know, recognizes, oh, I thought this was going to be a dog, but now I get it. Yes. And um, that's conversations that I probably have quite frequently with with owners. You know, I, I got this little pig and I thought, okay, we know we can pee pad train it like a puppy. That doesn't work very well. A more recent owner who was in showed me a video. It was a fantastic video. I'd never seen it. She actually had birds. She had rats. Um, she had a variety of different other creatures in her environment. And when she got her young pig, they were trying to figure out how best to potty train. Well, they had these year-old rats. And they were really worried about how the pig was going to be with the rats and Oh, no, they got along fantastically. And actually, she showed me a video where the rats 
seemed to have a communication with that pig, walked them into the area where they were supposed to start doing the litter box training, and the pig peed that day in that litter box because the rats walked them in there. It's like they understood this was a young pig and it needed to be trained, and they were directed him to say, this is where you need to go, and he followed their lead. Like something out of Charlotte's Web, right? Exactly. You know, and like I said, <laughs> the, the pig teaches me something new every day, or the pig owner. How, as a vet, have you become attached to some of the pigs that you've treated over the years? Oh, I'm attached to quite a few of them. One in particular from the last uh, few years, she had broken one of her legs when she was four months old, and we had treated her. And, you know, she was younger. She's going to heal really fast. I didn't bond with her as well during that time. But she broke her other leg when she was four years old. The owners and I met, had interactions about what the options were. She's a larger human-sized type pig, so it's not exactly the best prognosis for repair. But in conversations with the owners um, and one of our small animal surgeons, as we went through everything, he was willing to try, the owners were willing to try, I was willing to try. The pig had something that we all saw in her that said, I think she wants to try. It's now been, it'll be two years next month um, that we had performed the surgery. She is doing well. But I spent two and a half weeks, morning, noon, and night with this pig in the clinic. And we bonded a lot. And when she's come back now twice, you know, it's every time I see her, I am in the owners as well. We are just all elated, right? That she is doing well, that we all took a chance on her with that surgery. And we hope that, you know, she gets a few more, you know, productive, like happy years out of her. So I don't think I'll ever forget you know, I mean, there's many other ones I have too, but just more of the, like the more recent. I don't think I'll ever forget her. How popular are pet pigs and has it grown in recent years? Yeah, so it's pretty popular. When I got introduced to them, it was the late, late 80s. And it kind of fluctuates a little bit back and forth. And Hollywood sometimes helps out, you know, with Paris Hilton had a pet pig. Molly Cyrus had a pet pig. But I still think think they kind of stay steady. And then I do get some really great you know, owners who have really done their homework and know what they're getting into. But there's others that, you know, I ask in the beginning, do you realize they live 15 to 20 years? Oh, no, I didn't realize that. Oh, do you realize they could get to this size? Well, I had heard that, but we're hoping... <laughs> You know, you just get a variety of those <laughs> conversations. We're, we're hoping they may not. You know, we've, we've seen the parents. The parents are not that big. And then, you know, we still have a pig that, you know, they didn't feed them a lot. It just, they continued to grow. And at some point in time, we realize that we have a 200-pound pig. And after yeah. a while, then the owners are like, but, you know, I love this pig. I wouldn't have it any other way. And we may not get another pig in the future, but we are dedicated to the care of our current pig. Sherry Clark is a professor of theriogenology at the Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine at Virginia Tech. If a pet pig is sounding like a bit too much work for you, Nancy G is here to sing the praises of the humble dog. Nancy G is director of the Center for Human-Animal Interaction at Virginia Commonwealth University. She's studying how therapeutic relationships between dogs and humans can have actual health benefits. Nancy, what is it specifically that makes the dog and human bond so strong and so special. I mean, for instance, is it a certain place in our brains that we've identified? Our relationship with dogs has extended over tens of thousands of years. 
And through the process of domestication and selection for those animals that, for instance, wanted to hunt with us or felt safe in coming close to our fires and so on, dogs through that process have become adept at not only socializing with humans, but they've become very sensitive to our emotional states and our our social gestures like smiling and, uh, and our hand movements and our body movements. They're able to communicate with us using very complex cues. They don't speak English, though they do understand some language. If you've ever asked your dog, do you want to go for a walk? They pretty much know what that means. Um, but dogs are able to form complex attachment relationships with humans. And humans obviously do the same with their dogs. What about your own history with dogs? Did you just back into the study of the dog and human bond? Or has this been something that has grown over years? <laughs> That's a great question. I have been involved with dogs one way or another my whole life. I've never been alive and not had a dog. So, so my history with dogs goes a, a long way back. Um, I've done a lot of therapy dog work. So I've had seven therapy dogs now, and I, I have a seven-month-old puppy that I'm hoping someday will become a therapy dog, but right now he's a little more velociraptor than than dog, <laughs> so we've got to train through that. <laughs> but, and you know, what got me into this whole field, quite honestly, was that I was training my dogs in agility, and we were doing really well, and somebody said, hey, we're going to do a therapy dog evaluation. I think your dogs would pass the test. You got to come over and, and just see. And I thought, what the heck, I'll give it a try. So I took my two dogs over, and they passed. So I went to this uh, women's home uh, for older adults, and the funniest thing happened. The dogs were super excited about going there. They pulled at the end of their leash as we were approaching the nursing home. And, it, you know, these little, these little old ladies would come out with their walkers and just come going as fast as they could to get to the dogs. It brought them so much joy. We were going every week at the same day and time, and the women really looked forward to it, and so did my dogs. And I started noticing things. And then I started going to a preschool that was at my university, and they, the teacher there said, hey, we want to incorporate you into the classroom. Would you, would you bring your dog, you know, once a week at this time? And I said, sure. And, you know, the teacher started reporting, you know, this amazing thing is happening with this student, and this is happening. And so it was all this anecdotal evidence. And I thought, you know, as a scientist, I thought, wow, I wonder if there's anything to this. And so I started doing research with this preschool population because I was seeing all these little anecdotes, all these little things. I was hearing from all these people about how beneficial this was. But, you know, the skeptic in me was saying, yeah, is it real? You know, if we put this to the test, is there really something there? Well, here I am. <laughs> I've had something like 65 published papers on the topic. And, yeah, I think there's something there. <laughs> What are you trying to get at right now? You have several studies in the works, but what is elusive for you that you want to prove? I direct the Center for Human-Animal Interaction, and we have the Dogs on Call program. And back in May, we had 102 therapy dog teams. So that's a handler and their dog who come to visit throughout the VCU health system. And so what I want to know is, is it beneficial to loneliness, depression, and anxiety for people who are at their most vulnerable? They are hospitalized. In some cases, this is near the end of life. In other cases, you know, it's a long recovery. So we're looking at people who are in the hospital for a minimum of five days. So there's a serious reason that these folks are in the hospital. And our three populations are older adults, children, and those with mental illness. And what we're doing is we're randomly assigning them either to receive the human and the dog or just the human handler or treatment as usual. And we're looking at a variety of measures, including some physiological measures. We're looking at healthcare costs. We're looking at this longitudinally. So these three randomized clinical trials are sort of the gold standard of research in this area, and we're doing it in a major health system. And what are you looking for? I suspect, <laughs> I think we'll find that when they receive the dog visit, they have reduced loneliness, 
reduce depression, and decreased anxiety. It's very possible that these dog visits will somehow alter their trajectory of change. In other words, I'm curious, does having the dog there, if it decreases these aspects of of mental health or improves aspects of mental health, does it also alter adherence to treatment? Does it decrease their need for rehospitalization? And as a result, does it also reduce their healthcare costs? We're going to look at healthcare costs and readmissions as well in our six month follow up. Well, you're hoping for that because you want the cost of therapy dogs to be underwritten by the medical system. You know what? The, the therapy dog handlers are volunteers. So it isn't about trying to get the costs underwritten. What it's really about is demonstrating to those other medical systems. We're lucky. VCU Health is very forward-thinking. The Center for Human-Animal Interaction is in its 21st year. This isn't new here. It's very well-established. It's very well built into the structure of what happens at the hospital. But not all hospitals have programs like this. So if we can demonstrate very clearly the efficacy of these programs, then it's very likely that they can be established elsewhere and sort of more or less legitimized in other locations. Like I said, we're very lucky. The administration of VCU and VCU Health has been very forward thinking. And it's also important, I think, to point out that the dogs not only are beneficial to patients, but we do see that they're beneficial to healthcare workers. And as you know, during this pandemic, it has been very challenging for healthcare workers. You know, compassion fatigue and burnout, those are very real concerns. And our dogs on call teams, when they visit throughout the hospital, we did a quality assurance study to look at who's actually touching our dogs. And 73% of the people who touch our dogs are healthcare workers. Now, they don't spend as much time with the dogs as our patients do, but they just stop and get a little two, three, maybe five-minute interaction with a dog. We've got another study that actually demonstrates that a five-minute interaction with a dog during the workday can reduce their cortisol levels to the same level as sitting alone in a quiet room for 20 minutes. So these dogs are making a very real difference, not just for the patients, but also for staff. You know, I really appreciate that. I know several older people who I think would really benefit from the affectionate proximity to a dog. It's so hard to make it happen, right? Just to the, whether somebody is lonely at home or in a nursing home or in a hospital setting, how do you match a dog with that person? The dog needs so much care and and the benefit to the older person might be great, but how do you pull it off, right? You know, it is so important for older adults. And older adults may be in a position where uh, their health may be failing and their social networks are decreasing as they age. And it may be harder for them to maintain their pets. But what we find is that pets can be so incredibly beneficial to older adults. So older adults who have pets, there's some research that indicates that they do have decreased loneliness, depression, blood pressure, stress. We also see that they have increased levels of physical activity. They're more likely to socialize. There's some evidence that indicates that they have improved mental functioning. There's some evidence that indicates they recover from a stroke more quickly. But as I mentioned, it can be challenging for older adults to maintain their pets. And so then we need to look at animal interactions. And this is where therapy dog visitation can come in. So recently, a colleague of mine and I conducted a systematic review of the literature, and we, and we reviewed and evaluated the strength of evidence for 145 studies involving older adults. And the results show some interesting findings for older adults who interact with dogs. We see a number of decreases in measures of stress. So for instance, decreases in cardiopulmonary, neurohormone, and anxiety measures, decreases in heart rate, muscle tension, and skin temperature, decreases in blood pressure. And there also one study showed a decreased risk of falls and hospitalization rates. Another study showed that when older adults interact with dogs, 
their physical activities increase, their walking distance and speed is increased, and their walking ability and stability is increased. So there are a number of really positive findings for older adults. The evidence is also there for adolescents, um, and the evidence is also there for children. Would you recommend that hospitals everywhere and nursing homes everywhere attempt baby steps in this direction? I do. I do. But I think it needs to be done correctly. It's so important that that risk assessment be done. You know, where are the potentials for problems? Everything from, ooh, this door closes really fast. It could, it could catch a dog's tail to where the dogs uh, might go potty, to uh, who is and is not allowed to interact with what type of dogs. So you can't just say, hey, that's a nice dog. Let's bring that dog into the hospital. There's so many issues. You know, in the hospital, like it or not, things happen. Medications get dropped on the floor and handlers need to be prepared to not let their dog gobble up a pill if it's sitting on the floor. So there's a lot of training involved, but when done correctly, I've seen these things. And I tell you, there one of the first dogs I shadowed was um, a handler by the name of Pam Oakenwright, and she had just an amazing dog. Uh, she went into the uh, pediatric oncology department where children were uh, having chemotherapy. And, you know, when you walk in, it's it's a brightly colored, wonderful space, but there's a heaviness to it because every child there is undergoing cancer treatment and every parent, it's as if they've got a weight on their shoulders. And when the dog walks in and that child looks up, there's just that moment when it's normal, when it's not about this horrible disease. It's just about that child and that dog being a kid and a dog in that moment. And I have seen so many tears from parents and healthcare workers just watching that moment of, it's almost like you can take a a breath. We're just taking a pause from all the worries just for this moment right now. And that's what I mean by those anecdotes. That is an anecdote, but it's powerful. It's, It's moving and it's very real when you're there and witnessing it. So inspirational. Nancy G., thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Nancy G. is a professor of psychology and director of the Center for Human-Animal Interaction at Virginia Commonwealth University. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. Cats rule the internet, and they have since pretty close to the beginning. How did the information highway become a bunch of pictures of cats? Dylan Wickhauer is a philosophy professor at Old Dominion University, and he gets a bit philosophical about cat memes and TikTok famous cats. Well, I actually think the first one that I saw and the way that I ended up getting onto TikTok was a TikTok meme with uh, uh, Mr. Sandman and sort of uh, waving your cat over your phone camera. And then there's a specific like dance that you make your cat do. You shake its arms and it's, uh, yeah, I don't don't know. But uh, most recently there's been, it. well, I mean, I can play it very easily. Ooh, play it, yeah. Why? Okay, there we go. I need to turn the sound up on my phone. And so that sound, and then there are words that appear on screen. Um, and the one that I have says her name is Fatsma. Uh, it's one of my cat's names is Fatsma. And uh, then the second part. The words correspond to, she wants pork ribs, and <laughs> posted in the in the comments that you know no Fatima it's haram, um, <laughs> but 
And that, uh, yeah, uh, that, that I, th- I think that is uh, far and away my most viewed TikTok right now with, um, what, 297,000 views? No. <laughs> and what are cats doing for us as we're sharing with people we're super intimate with, as well as work friends or student friends or colleagues or strangers even, somehow the cats have softened or facilitated communication between us, right? Yeah, uh, in in lots of ways. Uh, One of them is the way that cats, they bridge public and private spaces in a way that uh, we have to to navigate quite a bit and we've had to navigate more and more uh, during the pandemic. Um, as we've been telecommuting and doing more Zoom meetings and working from home more and so on. Cats, um, they when they show up in social media, when they show up in online spaces, they show up in the context of their home where they're where they're at home, where they're comfortable. And so cats, they show up in this very strange in-between. They're introverted and they're at peace, and they're at home, and they're comfortable in a way that you never really get to see them unless they're your cats. So they project a kind of intimacy. Uh, They project a kind of like acceptance where the cat is at peace in a way that if you were with some friends or colleagues' cats, the cat would not be at peace. The cat would not be happy to just sit there and sort of snooze next to you. Uh, The cat would be wary. Uh, So they they project a kind of intimacy that's at this really interesting intersection of the introvert and the home office they also allow us individually to to say something interesting or to give something interesting to the people we're sending the the picture the video the meme out to that we're not allowed to say about ourselves so much it lets us put ourselves out there in surrogate right Right, yeah, and there's a universality about pets, especially pets that we're very familiar with, um, that lets us connect in this sort of way through them. Um, Tim Berners-Lee, who's often called the inventor of the World Wide Web, um, he was asked uh, what one of the major uses of it was that he didn't expect to, to see. And he said, kittens. Uh, he said, I never expected all these cats. And <laughs> that gives us a sense of how how strange this is, how prevalent it is, uh, and how it's it's not just a, a matter of, of social media, but that cats have been part of internet culture throughout. Why cats and not dogs or toddlers? <laughs> um, cats are an ideal medium of communication. Cats, they have a lot of concerns that are very strong concerns. There's a lot of affective or emotional charge to the faces that they make and the the actions of their body. But those directions are unpredictable. Um, like the you know the laser pointer and the the rustling and the uh, the spirits from beyond that they see on our walls, of course. And <laughs> so um, that can be redirected in whichever way we want to in order to communicate. And then with their bodies, their bodies have a lot of affect, but in ways that we we relate to but can't translate easily. So the movement of their ears and their tails. Uh, and then I think also really importantly, they don't have eyebrows. Um, <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> that allows that allows us to do a lot with their facial expressions because their facial expressions are very familiar, but underdetermined. So there's, they, they can give us a look that, you know, is definitely a look, but then we can, we can overlay all kinds of different meanings upon it. And um, depending on how we imagine the, the missing parts of their face, uh, missing from a human perspective... <laughs> Um, we can fill that in any number of different ways. There's a, there's a thing going around on TikTok now where women say men with cats are a green flag. Um, are dogs a green flag too? Dogs, 
they they put loyalty first, and and this is um, at least this is the analysis of the ancient Greeks, uh, which of course I know you didn't specifically ask for, but as long as we're talking about TikTok, of course, ancient Greek yes. philosophy is what comes up immediately to mind for everybody, I'm sure. So mm-hmm. um, if you if you look, for example, at uh, the Odyssey. Odysseus's dog Argos recognizes his master at this last moment before he dies. Nobody else recognizes Odysseus in disguise when he returns, but Argos does. And at that moment, his highest arete, his highest virtue, there's this loyalty, this recognition, and he dies at that moment. And that's and that's because that was the way that the Greeks thought of the dog and its nature. And uh, we also see this in a really nice way, in Plato's Republic, where Plato compares the guardians of the ideal city to dogs and says their nature is dog-like. And what he means by that is that they are loyal to their city. They put their city and its people first. And that's a virtue, but it's an incomplete virtue because... If they happen to be guardians of a wicked city, then they're going to be on the on the on the wrong side. And in the same way, a dog, and, and this is the analogy Plato is trying to make, uh, a dog is loyal to its master, whether its master deserves it or not, whether its master is kind to the dog or not, whether the master is a good person or not. Cats, you have to, you have to negotiate your relationship with cats, and you have to renegotiate your relationship with cats. They don't just decide yes, I like you, or no, I don't, and then that's their that's their decision. Cats, as a species, they're they're herd animals like we are. They like hanging out with us. They recognize humans as the kind of of animals that could be part of their group, but. They're not just gonna decide like, oh well, you, okay, you're okay, or you know, my master seems to like you, so therefore you're you're on the inside, you know, you're one of us. They're gonna figure that out on their own, and they're gonna decide if they want to have a relationship with you and what that relationship is like, and also they might just not be into it at that moment. Just be like, yeah, no, I'm just I'm gonna hang out right now on my own. It's whatever. Um, so. The green flag part of this, I think, is is right on, uh, that having a relationship with a cat, <laughs> it requires that you respect boundaries. It requires that you work out that relationship in a respectful way. You can't force yourself on a cat. Uh, <laughs> it will not be well received if you try. Before I let you go, I know you have a book out. Tell me about what would Plato think? So it's a series of little blurbs about different views and ideas and positions from throughout the history of philosophy on different topics, like the nature of science and the nature of the self and uh, questions about about God and the soul, uh, what truth is, and so on. And each section, which uh, they're, they're very short, they're, they're about a, a page each, as uh, followed by a series of questions and uh, some space to, to do some journaling in there. So the idea behind it is that reading philosophy, that's not going to make a big difference in your life. But doing philosophy and trying to see how it applies to how you think about things and how you want to live, uh, that's going to be very useful and very helpful. It's very appealing to me. I'll look for it. Dylan Whitcower, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Great. Thanks so much. Dylan Whitcower is a professor of philosophy at Old Dominion University. His book is What Would Plato Think?, 200-plus philosophical questions that could change your life. As a kid, when Degrassi was always bringing lizards and small snakes home in her pockets, Degrassi is now a professor in the Veterinary Technology Program at Blue Ridge Community College. And after years focused on work as a horse veterinarian, she's fallen back in love with reptiles— 
She talks about the common mistakes lizard and snake owners make and what it's like inviting these slithery friends into your home. When you spent years mostly working with horses, how did you start treating and owning lizards and snakes and reptiles? When my son um, got old enough, he started showing an interest in wanting a snake. And my husband has no desire to do anything with snakes. So I said, you know what? I can take care of it. I don't have a problem with it. I like snakes. And so we just started off with one snake. It kind of ended up being a passion between myself and my son. Something we did together was go to, you know, different expos to see different reptiles and then just learning a lot more about the reptiles. So that's kind of really what got me back into um, dealing with, you know, the different types of reptiles. You have a number of lizards. Tell me what kinds. Um, let's see. We have two what they call Peter banded skinks, which are from Africa, two leopard geckos, a northern blue tongue skink. We have two bearded dragons. We have a day gecko, which looks like the gecko gecko. And then we have a fire skink. And then this Tuesday, we're adding an Argentinian tegu to our lizard collection. How common do you think it is for people to have lizards and snakes like this? It wasn't common for a long time, but it started to become a lot more popular. And especially with COVID and the fact that more people are in smaller areas where it's a lot harder for them to have dogs and cats because a lot of apartment complexes won't let them have them, but they've not said no to some of the reptiles. And so now that they see more in the pet stores, they're becoming a lot more popular. Are you seeing lizards, pet lizards in your vet practice? Not in my practice because my practice is exclusively equine, but I'm on a Facebook group for people that own them, that are breeders that are really good with them, as well as veterinarians to be able to comment and help out owners that don't have a lot of access. And so what I see all the time on this Facebook group is, oh, there's no exotic vet within four hours, or I can't get an exotic vet. So there's a big need for more and more exotic vets. So I'm trying to start at our community college with the vet techs, increasing their exposure to reptiles. So then that way, maybe more vets would feel a little bit more comfortable seeing reptiles because the technicians are comfortable handling them. How much do owners of exotic reptiles, snakes and lizards, need a vet? And what for? They need to go in at least once a year to make sure that they're doing okay. A lot of owners don't get enough information when they purchase the reptiles and don't do enough research to where they don't know what they're doing. And so most of the reasons that reptiles come into a veterinarian is because of improper management and husbandry. They just don't know the right cages to put them in. They don't know what to feed them correctly, and they don't know how to take care of them. So a lot of times the vets are seeing them because they're sick, but if they would at least, once they purchased them, go into a vet initially, the vet could then educate them as to how to appropriately take care of them and what to do and what to look for. So you do think they need sort of a well-lizard program once a year? They need to be seen? <laughs> they do. They do because most owners don't pick up on subtle things. And then they can also talk to the veterinarian and the veterinary technician about as the reptile is growing and aging, things to look for, you know, little things that might be going on that maybe they're not showing that day, that then they'll they have a time and a platform to talk to the veterinarian and the veterinary technician about you know, what's been going on in their day-to-day -day activity to help them identify early things before it becomes a big problem. Name some of the things lizards tend to need and that vets might see when they're treating lizards and snakes. The biggest thing is most owners don't have the right size enclosure because the lizard, they don't realize, gets bigger. So iguanas are really cute when they're little, but most people don't realize iguanas get up to six feet long. And so they tend to try to keep them in too small of an enclosure, and that leads to a lot of bony defects as they're getting bigger 
to where they have um, bent limbs, bent spines, um, that leads to a lot of pain as they get older. Then you also get, um, you know, the ones that don't realize that lizards are out in the wild exposed to UV rays. And so they don't realize when they put them in an apartment that you need UV light to keep them healthy because they need that UV light to then basically the vi- take vitamin D to help metabolize calcium, which is necessary for bone development. So veterinarians will see a lot of what we call metabolic bone disease in these lizards because of the fact that they're not getting enough calcium in their diet as well as enough UV light in their diet. And in both UVA and UVB light is really necessary um, for proper lizard development. And so if they don't get that, their bones don't develop properly and they get really weak bones and they tend to break their bones. Again, they get deviations in their spine. They get deviations in their limbs so they can't walk correctly. And again, that leads to a lot of pain. What about common symptoms with snakes? With the snakes, a lot of times the owners don't keep proper humidity in their enclosure. And so with the snakes, we'll see a lot of what we call um, stuck shed where the, they're, when they're shedding, cause snakes shed a couple times a year, we'll see that shed get stuck on their eyes to where they can't see, or it'll get stuck on parts of their body, which will lead to constriction and sometimes part of their tail coming off because of that. And so that's kind of one of the more common things we see with the snakes and with all lizards, including snakes, respiratory disease can be a problem with all of them. Let me go back to iguanas growing to be six feet long. Surely you shouldn't keep an iguana because who can really handle and give proper running room to an iguana who becomes six feet long, right? Yeah. um, Most people shouldn't have an iguana. Some people will have entire rooms dedicated to them um, or enclosures like our tegu that we're getting is going to end up being probably about four feet long when she finishes growing. And so we have built her a very specific eight foot by four foot by four foot enclosure to keep her in. And then she's also going to be allowed to kind of get out and roam around. And so if you can't do that, then you probably don't need those larger lizards. Even though they're cute, when they're little, they do get quite large. How long can these lizards and snakes actually live? If they're kept properly, they can live anywhere from 15 to 20 years. Um, And then you've got tortoises that can live 80 to 100 years. It's amazing, right? It is. It is. Most people don't realize that they can live that long. And so they get them thinking, you know, I'm going to have a short-term pet like, you know, some of the you know, rats and mice don't live very long. Hamsters don't live a long time. And so they think they're getting into something that maybe would only live five or six years, not realizing one, some can grow very large and two, they live really long time. Can you play with pet reptiles? Can you play with pet lizards? Some you can, some you can't. Um, You know, some of your smaller ones can sometimes tend to be a little bit too fast and difficult for children. Um, but your bearded dragons are called the Labrador retriever of the lizards. So it's always a good one because for the most part, it's very calm and quiet and you can have it just kind of sitting on you and you can kind of just take it out and about with you. Um, and your larger lizards, some of them you can put on harnesses and take them out for walks and stuff. So, um, absolutely. Um, you can do a lot of interaction with your lizards. Have you noticed emotions and intelligence among your lizards that you hadn't really appreciated before? You know, that was that's a big debate out there right now because technically their brain doesn't have an emotional center. And so there's a big debate out there, do they feel emotion or do they not feel emotion? We know now that they sense pain, which they used to not believe that reptiles could actually sense pain, but we do know that they do sense pain. We also now feel that there is a type of, you know, they do have a type of personality. My two bearded dragons act totally different. 
Um, they're very different in their personality styles. One is a lot more quiet. The other is has a lot more activity. Um, and we even noticed that with our northern skink, the northern is better with me than it is with my son. And so <laughs> they're starting to identify people that feed them, that are around them all the time as safe. And so now we're recommending that when you're trying to introduce yourself to a new reptile, if you put your, things that have your scent on it, like an old shirt that might have your scent on it in there with it, in its enclosure where it feels safe, it'll start sensing that you're safe as well. And so that's a great way to introduce yourself to your reptile before you do a lot of handling. It's fascinating. When Wyatt goes off to college, you're going to inherit that four-foot lizard, right? I I am. I am because he's not going to be able to take it with him to college. That's for sure. Are you comfortable with that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm the one that wanted the tegu just as well as he did. So we're, we're, <laughs> we're actually rescuing it. It came into a reptile rescue, and we're um, adopting it from the rescue. Well, Wynne Degrassi, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Oh, absolutely. Not a problem. I've enjoyed it. Wynne Degrassi is a professor in the Veterinary Technology Program at Blue Ridge Community College. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monacan Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Costo is our intern. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to With Good Reason Radio. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>